Hi, this is Mark Rabin from Kinexus. We're excited to announce Vaxinexus. It's a free platform using Kinexus technology that allows people who are doing process improvement work related to COVID vaccinations to share with each other. You can share improvements that you've done in your vaccination process. You can see what others are submitting so that you can adopt and adapt or be inspired. We hope this helps spread continuous improvement as we aim to stop spreading COVID. To apply to get a free account, visit vaccinexus.com. That's V-A-C-C-I-N-E-X-U-S.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to um, today's webinar. I'm Mark Rabin, a senior advisor with Kinexus. We're really pleased to partner with um, Value Capture and Catalysis to bring you to, to, you know, we've organized and we're bringing you, um, I think, a very timely, a very important panel discussion with four um, esteemed panelists from um, different aspects of um, the healthcare system. Um, our, our session today, of course, is improving the COVID vaccination process lessons from the field. So I'll do some brief introductions. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the logistics for the day, and then we'll bring our panelists in and learn more about them and what they've been doing and what they've been learning. Um, so we're joined first off, um, Secretary Daniel Carey. He's a physician. He is the Secretary of Health and Human Resources uh, for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, we're joined, uh, we have uh, two people from uh, the UMass Memorial Healthcare system. We have uh, Penny Ionelli. She is the Chief Transformation Officer for the system. And we have Dr. Shlomit Shaw. Um, she has many roles, uh, and one of them is that she's the president of UMass Memorial Medical Group. And, and she may tell us more about that as she introduces herself. And then we're also um, joined by Lisa Malo. She comes to us uh, from Presbyterian Senior Care Network. So we've got you know, integrated hospital systems, we've got um, Lisa here representing um, senior care. She is the senior director of organizational improvement. And we've got about 90 minutes here. I think we're going to have uh, a great conversation. We're all going to learn a lot from each other. We'll, we'll start with um, introductions. And I'm going to just go round robin based on the order we ended up on screen here. Um, so Lisa Malosh, if you could start off, um, tell the audience about your role at Presbyterian Senior Care what that role has been and maybe a little bit about how that role has evolved. We'll start with that and then we'll come back to everybody and talk about um, your initial lessons learned. But Lisa, if you can start, please. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. And uh, thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here and share a lot of what we learned over the, the past several months. Uh, I serve as the director of organizational improvement and it's for Presbyterian Senior Care Network. And for some background, uh, Presbyterian Senior Care Network, we are a, a nonprofit faith-based senior living uh, care and uh, care options. Um, we have seven separate senior care communities. They're comprised of skilled nursing, personal care, assisted living. Um, we also have affordable housing options. We have at-home programs and services. We have about over 2,100 employees. Uh, we serve over 6,500 adults each year. Geographically, we're spread across about 10 different counties in Western Pennsylvania. So my primary role with the organization is to really lead us through uh, what we're referring to as a real lean transformation. So teaching lean across our entire network, um, learning how to learn differently and certainly identify problems and improve and, and, and all the things us as lean practitioners are familiar with. 
Uh, my role changed a tad bit when this started, just because you know you became all hands on deck uh, kind of mode of operations. Um, and so, you know, I also help with different operational things along the way. I'm a nursing home administrator by licensure, by background. I did that for well over 20 some years. Um, and just happy to bring lean learnings, certainly to our space in senior living, uh, but to share that with all of you here today. Great, thanks, Lisa. Um, Secretary Kerry, if you can go next, please. Well, thanks so much, Mark. I'm truly honored to be a part of this uh, esteemed panel. Um, I come from uh, a little bit different background as a administrator and a and a public public health figure uh, figure. In my background, um, my way way back background, I was an interventional cardiologist and vascular medicine physician that uh, rose in leadership as a uh, director of a cath lab and and then uh, head of a heart center and then a chief medical officer for a health system, and at the same time was very involved in uh, organized medicine and was the president of state medical society and got very involved with advocacy work and political leadership. So that's my background. I've been in, uh, the Northern administration here in Virginia for a little over three years. So we're in the last year and, uh, uh, our, my lean background, I was, I had the great pleasure as the senior vice president of a health system to help implement a lean management system. So that, frontline orientation, that sensitivity to operations, mm. trying to understand how do you support the people that touch the customer, the patient, the resident uh, in a real way is something I brought to public service. And it is, um, uh, uh, for me, I think the best way that I've been able to operationalize that is really always be a have that perspective of the frontline worker. So when I work with my leaders, how are you supporting the folks who are really doing the work? How does it feel to the frontline and how are they better able to serve the, the customer? So that's been, been my perspective and I've tried to bring that into my public service. When it comes to the vaccine campaign, and frankly, we, we do have a lot to learn. One of our challenges is data and we've got lots of vaccines in. We have a significant number of uh, less than reported on our dashboard and everything today with regard to PCR testing and and now it's vaccinations that have been administered. You know, we're lagging even though our total number is pretty solid, but we have got a lot to learn. So I'm looking forward to learning from the other, other panelists. I think the key uh, for us is that this has been a long pandemic. Our workforce is, is fatigued and the resilience has been taxed. So the margin is, is less. So as we push, and the most important thing we can do right now is get the vaccine out, especially to vulnerable populations, those 75 and above and, and those in the uh, nursing homes and how to manage that with CVS and Walgreens. And I'm, we're happy to, I'm happy to address that in questions. But I, I think the key for us is how do we uh, move forward faster and at the same time have our equity lens in place and make sure that we're uh, getting it to uh, the most vulnerable populations. And I, I can tell, I can talk through a little bit some of the pressures from a state level of how we opened our phases and, and how we're trying to operationalize that and how we dealt with instruction from the federal government two, two weeks ago. We've got a bunch of doses. Don't slow down. Oops, we don't have any doses. We've, you've got what you got. And, um, and having to backtrack that a little bit and having to push 
push health systems and health departments to get doses out fast from a inventory because of a somewhat slow startup, but then having them slow down because we got to live within our 100,000 100, per week uh, first dose budget. So those are some of our challenges and, and Mark, maybe a little long, longer than you wanted, but I thought I'd just give that perspective. All right, well, thank you for that. Um, Dr. Shaw, I'm gonna keep going around clockwise here. If you can go next, please. Hello, my name is Shlomi Chal. I'm uh, the chair of the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the University of Massachusetts. And actually I'm now in between uh, patients. So we made a space uh, for you, Mark. I'm delighted uh, to be here. I'm here actually in my other hat, which is the president of the medical group, UMass Memorial Medical Group, which is a group of uh, physicians uh, providing care here in Massachusetts in nine different uh, hospitals and uh, private um, uh, offices, clinics. So um, this uh, uh, my, the reason that I'm here is I'm known as a lean enthusiast Hmm. And everything in my department runs uh, by lean. Uh, we continuously reduce uh, waste and increase uh, value to our patients. Uh, <laughs> I myself, I'm a black belt, uh, wearing it proud here on my sleeve here. Um, but uh, every single per person in my department is at least a yellow belt. And um, uh, our residents... Uh, are actually trained in uh, lean and they will graduate for at least uh, a green belt. So we are uh, believers uh, in process improvement uh, in the lean management uh, toolkit. This has been proven here in our department as something that is not only improving our service to our patients, but also increases the staff and the physician engagement. Um, so as my, uh, in my other hat as a president of the medical group, uh, this is one of our priorities to make sure that all our department at UMass Memorial operate uh, through Lean's principle. And we're actually gonna train all the chairs and uh, all the leaders to be uh, highly uh, proficient in, in this process. So that's what we're known for in UMass Memorial. And you probably heard of our CEO, Dr. Eric Dixon, who started that uh, about eight years ago. We have had our lean uh, journey and now we're taking it to the next step. So happy to learn from the panelists and from all the people that are participating here in the chat uh, from all areas of the country. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, yeah, Dr. Dixon uh, is somebody that I've interviewed. I'll put on one of my other hats. Um, interviewed him recently in the Value Capture podcast that's called Habitual Excellence. And uh, he talks about um, you know, how UMass um, has made uh, a, a commitment to employees, uh, no furloughs, <laughs> no layoffs, building on lean principles. I think that's that's um, very admirable and um, it's great to, to hear about that. So I'll try to put a link um, to that. Um, in the chat. And so while we're talking about um, the UMass Memorial Health System, let me um, go next uh, to you, Penny. Perfect. Thank you, Mark. And thanks for having me today. Um, I'm Penny Ionelli. I'm the Chief Transformation Officer for UMass Memorial Healthcare. And um, I've really had the privilege of being able to help lead a lot of the lean initiatives that are going on at the healthcare system. Uh, my team is really made up of process engineers, project managers, and also um, a big group of our BI analytics 
um, and data warehouse folks. Um, and collaboratively, those three teams that I have um, really come together and do transformation work um, at the strategic level for Dr. Dixon. Um, he does view us as his strategic execution arm. And we're the get stuff done group. And we really try to be adding value every single day. And I think to, to your earlier question, Mark, um, the, the real difference between our role as our transformation group and the um, kind of COVID world is really just in the lens that we're operating under. We're still the get stuff done group, but we're running the testing sites and helping and with process in our um, field hospital, um, bringing them up. And it's one of the most, it's the busiest, one of the busiest field hospitals in the nation. And, um, and but also launching it and executing and bringing it back up. Um, and as well as um, in the vaccination as we're gonna be talking about today. So just a lot of the COVID lens to this, but it's really about how do we help the health system get to a point where um, they can deliver a lot of the stuff that the, that the community needs. All right, thanks, Penny. And before we'll, we'll do a round robin about um, lessons learned um, here, but I just wanna say real quick, we've got people here from Philadelphia, Portland, Pittsburgh, Florida, Memphis, San Diego, Ohio, England, Columbia, Sunnyvale, California, Calgary, Maine, Wisconsin, Washington, uh, and Boston. So, wow, we've got people. Thank you, everybody, uh, for joining. Um, so the next question that we're going to do round robin is uh, very open-ended, and there's a couple options here. Lisa, we'll start with you. If you want to share something either about what's your favorite lesson learned so far related to the vaccination work or COVID in general, what's the best lesson learned? Number two, you could, you know, if you want to say what's the most surprising thing that you've learned so far, or what's been your greatest challenge? You've got some, everyone's got some options here. Um, Lisa, if you want to go first, please. Oh, you're muted, Lisa. Lisa, you're, you're muted. Apologies. It's all right. This is how it goes. You get one point for Lisa. <laughs> it's all right. One point for Lisa. Um, sure. So early on in our when this the COVID started, um, we had a task force that was put together. So in preparation for this, I did reach out to a couple of the members of our task force to try to summarize. And I think that you know the biggest lesson learned for us, and we remembered every day that this really uh, battling COVID and you know certainly pursuing. Uh, everybody getting vaccinated that we can has been, this really takes a team of a bunch of different experts. And, uh, you know, it takes everybody within an organization, which for me, from the lean perspective was exciting because we've always started our lean transformation talking about, just think if every single, you know, one of our 2,300 employees is able to find a problem, stop the problem, talk about the problem, come up with an improvement. Um, and that's really helped us. So, um, I think just really, you know, whether it's a lesson or more of a validation, um, the fact that this really takes a big team of people uh, functioning uh, quickly. I would also say more of a validation than a lesson is, um, you know, the importance and the value of really quick PDSA. Um, things were happening quickly. Information was flowing from all over. Um, you know, we have geographically separate sites. So, you know, information was coming in and had to go back out. And um, I think just the ability to learn how to practice really quick PDSA cycles 
um, and sharing the learning has proven valuable for us. Mark, now you are muted, Mark. One point <laughs> for me. Point. <laughs> we'll see who the winner is at the end of this. Uh, <laughs> Secretary Kerry, um, best lesson learned, most surprising thing, greatest challenge, what would you like to share? Yeah, I, I there's a couple of those, so thank you. Um, I would say first the the lesson learned, and it led to us really a, a changing how we we did things. You know, I, I don't know where whether all uh, states use the you know, we adopted use the um, ACIP kind of priorities. I think most states have have adapted that, and and we did as well. But we did use that one A nomenclature of healthcare workers and those who are most vulnerable, those in long-term care facilities. And then 1B is this big group that we had indeed used the, the frontline workers, both from an equity perspective, that's where the outbreaks were, whether it was in a poultry plant or a, a meat packing plant, um, for example. And uh, also for us, uh, an equity issue because the disproportionate effect of COVID in the African-American communities, as well as the Latinx and Hispanic communities. So, we wanted to make sure that whatever lens we looked at uh, had that that in place. And then the elderly, um, those that are outside of uh, communities like ALFs, uh, assisted living facilities and, and skilled nursing facilities, we need to make sure that they were a priority as we got into 1B. But one of the unintended consequences of a, of a very I don't say prescriptive. I think that was Secretary Azar at HHS's description at a press conference a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, but that we were, we really took that ethical framework quite seriously and we really tried to build that into our operations. However, when we talk to the vaccinating communities, whether it's a health system working through their workforce or a local health department, they would say, hey, we need to operationalize this, we need bigger groups. Let us get into 1B and we could nibble into 1B while we finished 1A. And that did lead Virginia, uh, and it was uh, to, to move to 1B a little quicker. It created a different set of problems because we did follow the Secretary Azar and then the CDC, Dr. Redfield's guidance to include 65 and above, in addition to 75 and above, and those with with severe conditions that put individuals at risk. But suddenly we have now 5 million of 8.5 million Virginians eligible in 1B. So that obviously uh, created a, a very large pool that we need to work through. Um, but the point was is that the feedback from the field was that we need to operationalize this either in a rural community where they could do all the healthcare workers really in an afternoon, but they said, well, we've got you know, sheriffs and, and police and and uh, others that are high priority where there have been outbreaks in jails and prisons in uh, a very vulnerable population with those in, in a correctional facility that we should be nibbling into that area in order to make large scale events much more efficient. So I would say the lesson was we had to had our plan, um, but we needed to listen to the front line that's that's operationalizing it. Now I created a, 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 a another set of issues. Our, our biggest issue was how do we get inventory to make sure that we're not sitting on any doses? 
And part of our, our lag in the publicly uh, reported data has to do with um, some IT systems that we are working through the kinks, um, but also folks are worried about second doses. Um, so they're supposed to be getting uh, second doses uh, at the right time, whether a Moderna or a Pfizer vaccine at, at three weeks or four weeks. But how are we communicating that? Again, so we're, we're the behavioral change, excuse me, the behavioral reality and the situational reality at the front line needs to inform of our, our public policy. And I think we're doing a good job at that, but we obviously need to do a, continue to improve. Now, we do not do formal PDCA, uh, PDSAs or PDCAs um, uh, in that, but I do think it's small tests of change uh -huh. that design thinking, you know, do learn, do learn, do learn, which is, I think, very much akin uh, to that lean mindset. So I would say that lesson learned, those are examples of how we continue to listen to the front line. I think a, a surprising thing is, I think that, while I don't think it was overly prescriptive, the very complex, which was perceived as very complex ordering, um, led folks to, didn't give them permission to innovate and didn't give them permission to, to use up their doses fast. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's okay if you're looking for a healthcare worker who is in 1A that you bump up against a, a first responder who was at in our, our system at the top of, of 1B. It's okay to have that permission. And we, we've got your back both from a communication point of view as well as from a, a system point of view. So I think at this scale, it's um, it, performance improvement is just as important. And for us, it's making sure that what policy is then tested, it, uh -huh. the front line informs the policy and that we are continuing to see how the policy impacts the front line. Um, Secretary Kerry, there's uh, thank you for that. And there's a pertinent follow-up question I'll just throw at you real quick. Uh, Amber asks, or you know, I'll add first, it sounds like you're describing feedback loops from the front line to the health systems to you at the state level. Amber wanted to know, is there a mechanism for sharing feedback uh, up to the CDC or the federal government? Um, that's a great question. I know that our Virginia Department of Health is uh, constantly at the leadership level um, and section level communicating with uh lifelong contacts or, or at least continuing contacts they have with the CDC. Um, and there's a, an ordering process in Tiberius, which I'm, I'm not sure y'all are familiar with. That's the ordering uh, uh, system that Project WorkSpeed has in order to know what first doses are coming, what second doses are coming and the like. So I, I think there's communication. Um, and we also do give feedback at the, at the, at the subject matter expert level. Um, I do know that I've talked uh, on Sunday for a half an hour with General Perna to let Project WorkSpeed know um, after the communication challenges and walk back of actual physical doses being released um, around that. So we do have channels at the, at the subject matter, matter expert level to the CDC, uh, but also directly with uh, our federal counterparts. And we do do calls with, with Secretary Azar and uh, the governor has calls with, uh, with, with uh, now, and now you have the new Biden administration, but we expect those calls to continue. So there is um, two-way communication.
Thank you, Secretary Kerry. Dr. Shaw, if um, you can share some thoughts with us on this. So I would uh, take the question about the biggest uh, surprise, and I would say what a surprise this pandemic is. The entire pandemic was a huge surprise. I think as a physician, uh, you learn about uh, infectious disease and you learn about pandemic and, and you know that there's every 100 years there's going to be a pandemic, but we never lived it and uh, we never experienced it. So we know, for example, of the Black Death, the bubonic plague in the 1300s. That's a long time ago. We can read about it. We can see pictures and we learn from notes of physicians and we know about the suffering and the death. Uh, and that's perhaps the biggest pandemic that uh, uh, is recorded. And we learned about it and kind of, you know, we um, appreciate, we thought we appreciated the, the suffering. And then we all know about the smallpox and I'm old enough even to have a vaccine for uh, smallpox. And this is a pandemic that was eliminated by vaccines. And now suddenly, you know, in December, uh, 2019, which is not too long ago, suddenly we were hit with a new virus uh, that was never described before, and it's uh, spreading fast to all over the world very, very quickly. Um, and I think this uh, the surprise element is that it can happen, and it kind of changes the entire way you operate. But what's been incredibly um, rewarding at least in academic medicine, is really the key part that scientists uh, play in the answer for this pandemic. And I think it's unheard of that within a year, we have several vaccines that are available, that are approved, that are distributed worldwide. Other vaccines are coming uh, down the pike. And I think now that our greatest challenge is to make this COVID-19 the new smallpox. So smallpox, the last case was described in 1977. Um, and this is a disease that doesn't exist anymore. Um, I hope that COVID-19 will be such that it doesn't exist, but this will take uh, really from all of us a response that um, allows trust in the vaccine. Just before I came uh, here to this uh, panel, I met uh, one of our um, housekeepers here in the elevators and we all have been offered the vaccines. And I asked her, did you get your vaccine? And she's like, no, 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 I'm not getting it. So the trust, mm -hmm. even within our own people within the system in the different roles, you have to make sure that people trust it because vaccines are not useful unless they are in arms. Um, so my biggest surprise is the is this pandemic. It's a huge surprise, and um, very proud to be part of uh, you know the magnificent uh, academic healthcare system and uh, medical school systems. And UMass Memorial has participated in all of this in developing. Um, description of the virus and identification of the virus and its mutations in um, providing care and developing treatments mm -hmm. in, de in developing vaccines, including clinical trials. And now we are, you know, in the treatment, of course, of COVID-19 
patients and prevention of uh, death as much as possible. Um, so I think this has been incredible, an incredible experience. And I hope that we can, with all the bad thing that comes with it, you know, a lot of death and suffering and anxiety, I hope we can really be proud of uh, what we have achieved as not only as a, as a nation, but also worldwide. Uh, the collaboration uh, between scientists and of course technology has facilitated this incredibly, but it has been amazing. I mean, usually it takes a long time to set up a clinical trial, to get all the approvals, to get all the patients, takes years. You know, we've done it with less than a year worldwide. It's amazing to me um, as somebody that is a clinician scientist. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. Um, Penny, what are your thoughts and reflections here? So I, I for me, um, on lessons learned and surprises, I think it's really more about the reinforcement of certain things that I kind of knew to be true, but it's like reinforcing. So specifically, that process design counts and it matters. And even taking some time to do this is in incredibly important if we're gonna be successful. So for example, in the vaccine uh, event design, I have a master black belt that's working there, Todd Fisher, he's fantastic. You know, he spent the time, we started this process in October, he spent the time to design out the process, mapping it out, and then understanding where the bottleneck most likely will be based on space and being able to design backwards, right? And that, taking that time, even if it's a little bit of time, makes a difference. So there's that. And then also the reinforcement that investing in process improvement learning pays out dividends in these types of situations. And you know, having this army of innovators at our disposal at UMass Memorial, where we have all of our caregivers going through lean training. Now you're not off going just doing lean training for the sake of lean training during this, but you're applying those experimental cycles into the work and landing it where it actually matters. And it's not just this action off to the side, but it's something that's happening every day. And we, we as a health system, our patients and our community really benefited from that. So those are the kind of real big learnings, but really the reinforcement of things that we already kind of invested in. Okay, thank you, Penny. And um, I'm gonna follow, um, we're gonna cover questions in a couple of different areas that roughly follow the high level value stream here. Um, we're gonna talk about you know the flow of vaccine doses to the facilities. We're gonna talk a little bit about um, scheduling and planning. Um, and then we're going to talk about uh, some questions related to actually giving the doses and follow up. And then we'll talk um, more about, um, you know, culture and continuous improvement. So the first question for anybody who'd like to, to volunteer to address this um, is about, you know, uh, visibility that organizations have or do not have about how much vaccine is coming in what quantity and when. Um, I've talked to a couple of people at health systems who said um, sometimes that visibility is not as good as it could be in terms of being able to plan staffing levels and contacting patients. Um, I was wondering if, if anyone would want to share perspectives on how that um, visibility and flow is working or, or if you have ideas on improving it. Um, Penny? I, 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 can, I can start. Um, you know, we um, at the healthcare system level, initially, you know, we've been working with the state very closely as everybody is, right, and trying to understand that supply 
and the feed into the system to be able to manage the process as smoothly as possible. So that that work's been going on for months. However, um, you know, there's been a variability to it. There's ebb and flow based on as they were kicking up the manufacturing processes and all of that. Um, we do have is um, we've gotten to a point this week where we've ha- actually gotten a commitment for a steady flow of vaccines coming in. And having my um, folks um, kind of at the front end of that in terms of the delivery processes, it allows for a lot smoother process, as you can imagine, as opposed to this incoming variability. Um, But we've actually, um, but that's been a struggle prior to this. And, you know, Dr. Dixon having such a strong voice in Massachusetts has made such a big difference for UMass Memorial and being able to do that for our healthcare workers and getting those here. And we've actually been very successful. I think we're over 13,000 vaccines given to our internal caregivers. And we're going down the process of um, giving them to uh, the first responders as well. Um, And now in the coming weeks uh, into our patient populations that are in-house because we have that steady state. And that also allows for that second dose linkage, right? Because now we know exactly what we're getting we can start you know, earmarking which ones are connected to those folks that are coming back. And we really don't have a lot of concern about that second dose. Mm-hmm. And, and um, Secretary Kerry, can you maybe elaborate? Earlier you talked about um, you know, the flow of vaccine versus what's being held back. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but generally the second dose should be given about three weeks after the first. And, and Right, well, I think more. these folks, the clinicians know uh, yeah, the Pfizer is three weeks, Moderna four weeks, okay. and the production uh, from Project Warp Speed and the federal government is is distributing that at a pace that they can predictably supply that second dose. So they're limiting first doses to a number that they can sustain at the production level because all this is just in time production. There's no warehouse at the factories, there's no warehouses at the federal government or, and there's certainly no warehouse here in Virginia. So you've got to know and be confident of that sec, you know, that what Penny just mentioned is critically important. And frankly, we need to communicate that better here in in Virginia, because one of the things that's, I think, slowing us a bit is that we have not communicated and and despite evidence that second doses have been arriving, um, but they're not labeled as such. So you have to have a system in place, and Penny is is nodding that that you communicate those seventy those five thousand you received are for new first doses, and based on a lower number of first doses, you now you get this week you may get you know three thousand second doses, and eventually it should be steady state that you're vaccinating um, whatever you, you know, you did, uh, you know, ideally in, in Virginia, that's 100,000 first doses, 100,000 sec- second doses. So we need that ability to do 35,000 uh, uh, administrations, you know, shots per, per day in order to, to keep up with that. The challenge is there is some variability and, and as, at the initial startup phase, um, that is um, folks, or left with some inventory, and and that led to you know it's not steady state. So you needed to really map that out, and then for us it's <laughs> communicating that. So that there's confidence that we can use all these doses. They're earmarked for first dose. 
confident that you have some second doses that are programmed from previous weeks, but faith that we will designate, they don't come through the state, but the state does say second doses go here, and uh, that, 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 that that is indeed um, synchronized. Mm-hmm. So I think that's from the state level is fairly complex uh, in the startup phase. And but we do think that it's kind of a bad news, good news from a from a planning perspective. We, we have to live within our means. Um, the bad news is we we really could. You know, we had 300,000 orders this week for the 100,000 first doses. Mm-hmm. So that's our reality is that we're we're help. We're encouraging people to go fast even as we we know once they use up all inventory, we have to go back to that steady state. Mm -hmm. So um, mapping that out and understanding that flow has been a real challenge at at this scale. And um, we're still working through how to make that most efficient. And just to piggyback on that and in an answer to uh, Asfand Khan in the chat here, I think, um, he or she, I don't know if it's a, a man or a woman, but uh, they made a very uh, important point about communication, that communication is is key uh, for that. Uh, we are here at our healthcare system, the communication with employees was, you know, in different levels. Um, there was a central communication you know, by email from the CEO office, but then there's also several other layers uh, in a medical center, in a medical group, through town halls, through chairs that communicate with their department. And um, it's still amazing to me that even after you give messages, there's still people who haven't heard it or who do not know um, so just um, uh, one, uh, you know, little story, anecdote. When I'm a surgeon, I one day come to the operating room and obviously in my role, I participate in, in the highest level of uh, meetings in the organization. And one day I come to the operating room and there is a, 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 a nurse anesthetist that is telling everybody that we will not have the vaccines, that everybody will have the vaccines, but we will not have the vaccine here at UMass Memorial. And you know, I was shocked uh, and I'm kind of, okay, excuse me, where did you get this uh, information? And so there's a lot of source of misinformation uh, in the internet, in the social uh, media, in, you know, hearsay, you hear, you know, your friend some, say something and then you repeat it. So uh, I completely uh, agree with, um, with Asfan Khan here that said that communication is key. We have to communicate. We have to communicate frequently. We have to make sure that uh, the message is the same message we have here, medical school, medical system, medical center, department. We have to make sure that we communicate the same message to all people and repeat it again and again. And then if we find somebody that is, you know, misinformed, uh, we have to correct it right then and there to prevent this uh, spread of misinformation. Because that's, I think, one of our greatest enemy, that people would be afraid of getting the vaccines. Uh, you know, we have an, enough anxiety as it is from this pandemic. We do not need another anxiety uh, around the vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, quick follow-up question. When you talk about first and second doses, these are physically the same, right? It's the same vial with the same label, but it's treated in a, I mean, the planning process, there's this complexity of, of 
treating them as in, in a way as if they're they're virtually different. And I guess there the, is the, actually a different uh, thing there because we have two different vaccines, right? We have right. Moderna and Pfizer. So you have to make sure, and the, the time difference between them, you know, Pfizer is three weeks, Moderna is four weeks. You have to make sure if you, you know, come up with the first vaccine is Moderna, show up in four weeks and get the Moderna vaccine. Right. Okay. Yes, that's good. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, you know, there are, I've seen reports, uh, you know, there's still the science, being on the scientific medical frontier here that the vaccine producers are doing studies and looking at the question of, should we be giving more first doses? versus doing first and second. Are there any perspectives on that? It would, it would uh, make things simpler from a supply chain and planning standpoint, but any, does anybody have thoughts um, related to that? Yeah, this is a, the, a very interesting. I mean, the, Secretary Kerry, you can uh, give your perspective, but this is a, you know, this is a whole seminar, I think, Mark, uh, <laughs> of debate, because you're opening a very important uh, question. You know, we uh, have clinical uh, trials that were, conducted in a certain way and hence this uh, doses. This is how we uh, proved that it worked. And clinical trials are designed in that way and we have proof that the vaccines are more than 95% effective used like that. Mm -hmm. Now the debate is what would be if you only give one dose and we have you know, data regarding that as well. Uh, and it confers about, uh, depending upon the timeline, but about 50% uh, um, uh, defense. So one, one of the you know, theories that is uh, supported by many experts is, you know, you have limited vials. Why don't you just distribute it to everyone? So, you know, it's a, it's a big point of uh, debate and, uh, you know, food for thought. I would be interested in, in Dr. Carey's uh, uh, opinion. Well, I would say that uh, we uh, are currently committed to the, the two-dose regimen. Uh, I think I, too, have seen, I think I've personally seen more of the data on Pfizer where almost no one had a serious infection after, you know, very, very low numbers after two weeks post the, the first vaccine. So there is some preliminary data. I would say that um, I don't think we want states and and uh, folks freestyling on that, I, I, I do think we want a systematic approach mm -hmm. so that there isn't even more chaos thrown into the environment. So I'm very practical from a public policy perspective. I think that uh, if we were to make such a move, I think we should do it on a national basis um, with understanding of the uncertainty and the rationale. I think that doing that um, piecemeal I think would undermine trust. Um, but I do think that there's no doubt intellectually, if you got all of those doses out as first doses and then did second doses, it, it probably would, would, would work. I don't think the timing with Shingrix and other, you know, um, uh, shingles vaccines. I mean, they say come back between two and four months, you know, it's, it's not that that second dose is indeed important, but, but again, I would say the other side of this is that, again, it's not for long-term um, efficacy. It's really for protecting people in the short term. So I think arguments can be made, but I would recommend that you don't do that on a, on a piecemeal basis. If we were to make a move like that, I think we should do it wholesale. Otherwise, it would undermine that trust. 
Mark, can I add a couple thoughts as well? Yeah. Um, so I think that there's, I, I completely agree with Secretary Kerry in terms of having a standard approach um, where we're following all the same, because then I think that you can do data simulation around it. I think this is ripe for that, right? And um, so I think that there's some really great opportunity and it's not a hard thing to do um, with some very basic tools, but I think if you do data simulation over here and you know and you kind of try to follow a path that way and you don't have a standard approach it, it can be very chaotic but i also think that there's a, a concept and a thought around kind of getting out at least a bare minimum of vaccine is better than no vaccine and to have that that herd immunity is probably a good thing this comes from an uneducated non-physician but thinking about the fact that you do get some level of immunity towards this, um, even with that first vaccine. I think if I heard correctly, it's up to 50%, but I don't want to quote that specifically. But, you know, but I think that if you can do that and get as many people on that path um, and they're starting to produce more and more behind it, you could probably do it. But I think also you could do it through simulation. So that would be my 18 cents on the matter. All right. Um, so let's shift and talk a little bit about some of the, the planning for the vaccine administration. Lisa, maybe I'll, I'll direct this at you first. Um, when did that planning and that process development start? How much lead time did you have? And can you describe the process that you went through to develop the process? Yeah, so actually being in the senior living sector, we were, you know, uh, Secretary Kerry referenced, we have partnered with one of the large pharmacies. Um, so we had to plan this in collaboration with, with them. Uh, I believe uh, sometime mid late fall is when we started getting information that this was going to be the, the, the large scale process for long-term care providers. And we had some choices to make and select the um, pharmacy partner that we wanted to have. So once, you know, we went through that and, uh, you know, numerous education and communication back in and forth, which, um, you know, was sometimes um, changing by the day, as we, we have all learned, sometimes things changed every day. Um, but we started our planning, you know, back in the fall. Um, we were assigned essentially clinic dates from our pharmacy partner. And as they provided us as much information upfront as they could, we had a lot of preparation to do on our end, on the back end. Again, we are uh, vaccinating our long-term care residents. So these are people that live with us, some in a short-term rehab capacity, but a lot that, that live with us. And so, you know, the consent process and the paperwork, and we had to have all of that ready. So uh, early on started getting that ready. At one point, I think we were, it was shared with us that, um, you know, we're going to give you a date. Um, we don't know when that date is. Um, when we give you the date, you have 10 days to be ready. So um, I think it was a, a practice for us to really say, okay, we're learning about lean. We're not that far in our journey, but how can we, how can lean help us with this? And so we actually pulled together uh, a lot of different people in our organization and we drew it on the wall and said, okay, here's what we know today. And we actually mapped it out and, and, and we went through the process and figured out where we might have problems, um, developed the best standards we could from there and, and rolled it out. I've actually had the opportunity to be on site at our clinics. Um, we pulled uh, our lean team, which is uh, just uh, a few of us, 
And we actually worked the clinic at our very first clinic so that we were able to have firsthand collaboration from our team members coming in, from our caregivers that were working directly with the vaccinators who were going resident room to room. I think one learning for us that helped in our planning is that our planning was going to be an everyday planning initiative. And so that after each clinic, we got together and say, what worked? What didn't work? What did we learn? What questions do we have? What do we need to adjust? I think it also just uh, bring up for us and what we learned is, you know, we didn't always know how many we're getting. We, we provided lists and what we thought. And uh, again, great collaboration with our pharmacy partner, but we just didn't always know. And what we quickly learned is we may not always know. And so what do we need to be prepared for and how nimble and quick can we be to adjust on the fly? And that was really fun to apply some lean thinking with that. Uh, with our, you know, looking at our target, which is we want as many of our residents and, and team members and even care partners, we call them care partners. So not our employees, but people that come into our environments to provide services um, to our residents. Um, um, you know, how can we be ready to say, hey, we can do more today or, hey, we, you know, we, we wanted to get you through today and we couldn't. So we're going to divert you here. So we just continue actually practicing that after each clinic to see what we can learn and quickly adjust to go through the cycle. That's great. Um, Penny, can you share some thoughts on what you did at UMass Memorial? Yeah, so um, we started the planning back in October. We did assign some folks to it. And um, that work really was kind of what I was talking about a little bit earlier around process design and process mapping out kind of the different steps and doing some dry runs um, to understand how things will work. And what ended up happening is they found that the bottleneck was actually at the holding area um, post-vaccine um, because we are requiring that people are held for 15 to 30 minutes to make sure that there weren't effects. And um, that was really tough because you can only have a certain number of people in the specific space that we were doing it in. So we knew that we were going to be very constrained right off the right off the bat. So really, it was trying to figure that part out and working backwards and understanding the throughput rate so that things can be very seamless. And not only thinking about how fast we can get people through, but specifically thinking about the quality aspect and the error reduction aspect of it to ensure that when we're getting people through in a seamless customer oriented type of uh, process because this whole thing has been very chaotic for all of us. And how do we make this a really easy process and thinking about that bottleneck at the end and designing for it? So um, that happened starting in October. Okay. Thanks, Penny. Um, a couple quick follow up questions. This is, uh, I think, maybe more of a clinical question, but it might be on a lot of people's minds. Jennifer asked, um, when it comes to communicating with people, um, how do you communicate about the, the, the idea? Some healthcare workers might be waiting on the potential J&J one-shot vaccination. How would you communicate about the importance of, of not waiting is how the question was phrased. Yeah, I also saw that uh, question in the um, chat. I think it's a very uh, important question. I think I agree that it's a, on a lot of people's mind, you know, I myself, I'm afraid of needles. So no one wants, if you can get one shot, you know, it's better than, than two shots. But, but the reality is, is that it's a shame to get COVID now. It's a shame to be very sick from COVID now. And it's really, you know, a disaster if you, somebody dies from COVID now, because there is a vaccine. If you could get the vaccine now, it may protect you. And the way vaccine works, 
uh, yes, they offer uh, protection for the individual, but actually the reason that we vaccinate everyone is that this is protection for the entire society. And like the example of smallpox that has been eradicated completely, um, you know, vaccination is the best way to get to herd immunity. A bad way to get to uh, herd immunity is to let everybody get sick. That's a very bad thing because then some people will die. So uh, the way to communicate this is don't wait. You know, if you're invited, take this opportunity and get vaccinated. And I think it's a, it's a matter of mindset in a different population, different community. People have different mindset. There is a community of people that is... The minute, you know, the minute we, we're going to get this uh, in, invited, we're going to go that day. We're not going to wait. We're just going to go and get it. I can't wait to get the vaccine. This is one mindset. The other mindset, well, I don't know, you know, maybe I shouldn't, maybe it's dangerous. And also, you know, misconception about the vaccination and then everything in between. Um, so from our perspective, um, as a healthcare givers uh, who are really uh, charged with you know, the, the, the health of the population. We need to get as many vaccines in arms as possible. And therefore now we have two types of vaccines and the approach is you don't get to choose, just get a vaccine and get it as soon as possible. There's another, by the way, question in the chart that caught, caught my mind is, uh, is the federal uh, involvement. And uh, from Melinda uh, Manette, uh, I don't know if our panel had a, a chance to, to look at it. Really interesting question. You know, what people think about federal involvement. Yeah, so Melinda's question was, um, you know, from your perspective, will further federal um, planning or assistance or a push from the new Biden administration, will that help or will that add further bureaucracy? What could the federal government do to help mm. is the question. Can I say something on that front? I, it's kind of more from a, I would say more of a layman's uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. My um, family lives in Florida and um, they, my mother is going through the process of trying to get vaccinated. She's over 65. And um, in Florida, they've actually created quite a lot of mass hysteria with how they're doing um, their vaccinations. Um, and kind of this, it's very much like the radio Colin shows. And if you get, if you're collar 10, you get a vaccine. And, um, I think having the state by state processes does complicate things. And obviously secretary Kerry probably can chime in on this. Um, I think the, what the federal government could do is really think about where we can standardize this and maybe give policy around that I think the panic that it's ensuing with the elderly in Florida, it's just wild that there's all these um, kind of lotteries and all that. There's really no process for uh, for how to get it. And when you think about equity, when you think about fairness, when you think about all of that, I think that's where the federal government can stand in and really offer assistance and maybe give guidelines and, you know, process guidelines, but um, not so much telling them how to do it, but giving those, 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 those guardrails. Secretary Kerry, do you have thoughts on that question? Sure. Um, I mean, this, uh, the vaccine program, uh, I mean, to answer the previous question about planning, we started planning as soon as 
you know, as we stood up our, what we call our unified command and incident command um, back in February, really in January, when they saw, when our team saw what was happening in China, kind of anticipating that we, we were watching it and stood up an incident command at our Department of Health in the first week of January. And unfortunately, our, our I won't say our worst fears, but predictable possibilities have played out. And so that really began, do we need to be getting syringes? And, and you know, based on our PPE and testing, I mean, those were free-for-alls. I mean, and uh, I mean, I'll just share an anecdote. I, I don't want to politicize the conversation, but being with our governor, Governor Northern, we are a Democrat administration. Um, my my governor, by the way, is a he's a pediatric neurologist, very sophisticated, obviously, and uh, had practiced while lieutenant governor um, in years back. So very attuned to the front line, uh, as well as very knowledgeable about um, medical issues and and care of patients. So we, when it came to PPE, we were going into the marketplace ordering with dubious uh, intermediaries to try to get. PPE in Virginia for folks we were actually competing against, the health systems, because they were going to that same market. There was no national coordination either on the production side, a very small amount. And it was a it was a free-for-all. And it was that way on the on the testing side. And this is a little bit that way. It's much better in terms of using, I think what was cited earlier by uh, Dr. Shaw on the the getting incredible success of the scientific community as well as the manufacturing community to get anything close to this amount of vaccine out in essentially in less than a year. So truly amazing. But at the same time, there's a, you know, you're in it on your own at the state level. And I think that's that's not the best use of a federal system. And I would say that at this point, um, it's hard to walk it back, but I do think um, assistance with War, War Production Act, speeding manufacturer, manufacturer of additional vaccines and of our current highly effective vaccines, it would be extremely welcome. And I do think as indicated, are there, uh, you know, using FEMA to its full extent for large vaccination centers as we get to mass, uh, mass vaccination um, of, you know, five, 6,000 a day at, for example, in Virginia, 20 or 30 sites. But right now, as things trickle in at 100,000 a day, excuse me, 100,000 a week, we won't be through 1B until the end of December. So we know that's got to increase. So that that is our challenge. How to, I think the federal government can help in any way that they can to speed production. Mm-hmm. And secondly, are there facets, a lot of this is the last mile. It's that clinic. It's that federally qualified health center. It's the free clinic to make sure that they've got what they need to vaccinate their population. But getting to, you know, 300,000 a week in Virginia, which would be a tremendous increase in production, would really allow us to not parse it out so restrictively and get it out quicker. I think, again, it would build trust. It would encourage um, folks to say yes, because I think in our, our population in Virginia, um, our healthcare workers, maybe 60% are saying yes. A lot of young women are, are in the workforce in healthcare. That's just the demographic. And those of childbearing age, whether it's on 
the internet, but there's been some question about, about its safety when again, getting COVID, especially when you're pregnant is a, is, is life-threatening to all concerned. And, and that's a, a relatively high risk group. So I do think federal leadership, not that states can't implement, not that, that we uh, can't do this well, but I think as coordinated as we can be, how to marshal a national response. And I think we saw that with equivocation about this being a, a serious pandemic in the first place. And what's the efficacy of, of masks and this keeping the six feet and hand hygiene and staying home with your sick. Those four things can keep us all safe even as we wait for the vaccine. So um, I, I do welcome a heightened federal coordinated response with the states going forward. And just to, to mention that this is not a United States uh, problem, this is a global problem. And if we wanna really appreciate what the federal government can do for us, we should take a look at other countries and what they're doing and how they are leading their vaccination process. So um, I know no one noticed my accent, but I'm originally from Israel and Israel has the same number of residents as the state of Massachusetts. And they have already, you know, they're leading the world in terms of how many people they get vaccinated. And the reason is, is that there's a national coordinated response. And also uh, one interesting thing is that the, um, the healthcare system there is built in a way that there are only basically four choices uh, of types of healthcare uh, system that you can get. It's a, it's a national healthcare, it's a free healthcare system for all. And so they can really design a process and roll it out to all the sites. And it's highly uh, computerized and uh, very uh, data uh, engaged. So, you know, my family in, in Israel, they're age 35 and, and vaccinated. <laughs> so, and my husband still can't get it. So, so you know, I think that, um, you know, we are here in America, we are le leading, we are thinking that we are leading the world. We are leaders of the world in many things, but we have a lot to learn from other countries uh, in the vaccine uh, rollout uh, process. And also some person uh, mentioned in the past, in the chat regarding lesson learns from this pandemic and what would stick and what not. I think we have a lot to learn from, you know, other healthcare systems and, and make sure that we, um, you know, look beyond uh, America, uh, look beyond North America and uh, find out, uh, you know, what, what worked in other places and how can we make our healthcare system better, more approachable, more equitable, and also, quite frankly, how can we move faster? Mm -hmm. we have, um, thank you for that. We have a, a question that came in. This is maybe both process and clinical. Um, what happens if someone misses their second dose of the vaccination? Then I think the process question that I wanted to ask was, how do you help manage that? Um, and and what's, what's the process to be proactive or do you end up chasing people down or what, what, are, what are your organizations doing? on that. So I can talk a little bit about what we're doing and I'm sure Lisa probably has things to add as well. Um, so we actually have about a 10% no-show rate. We've managed our scheduling 
um, of our vaccinations through our learning um, infrastructure. So our learning systems have a way to schedule classes and sign up for classes. It's called el for You. We've actually assigned this out to all of our caregivers, um, which gives the, which attaches a notification system to it, which makes it a little bit easier. Attaches it to your calendar and that kind of thing. Um, so how they're managing it is that we've initially done the, these big pushes of of el for You. When there's a no-show, there's a process at the check-in. They're watching the no-shows like minute by minute because they're also doing that to manage the process as well. Um, and when they're finding by the end of the day that there are no-shows, there's a call list that they're going through and they're rescheduling and reissuing those el for use So we've put infrastructure in place to be able to quickly manage that. Um, they're also scheduling when they, the person does show up for their first dose, they're actually attaching um, the second dose appointment at the same time. So they check in for the first um, and they schedule it right there. So it's all kind of built to try to airproof as much as possible. You're never going to do it 100%, but they're constantly improving that process um, as they've been continuing to do it. So by having that infrastructure, we've been able to, to help with that, but we still have a 10% no-show rate because people are sick, you know, their family's sick, you know, maybe they forgot. Um, that's the human nature of it all. But um, at the end of the day, that's what the, that's what we're doing here. Lisa? We have, we have a similar process, certainly not, not uh, from a technology perspective, um, not as sophisticated. We have been tracking through our, you know, our HR systems as to who's interested in, in getting the vaccine, which allows us to really reach out and We've had our managers talk to their folks. And again, I think somewhere in these conversations, we heard about trust and mis misinformation. So what we found is a lot of these one-on-one -on -one conversations with our team members from people that they really trust, who has done a lot of research has been helpful uh, to provide everybody the right accurate information so that they can make a decision. And then we just manage it, manage it by the lists and you know who's come through today, who hasn't. We've tried to make it very live time. So we're tracking who hasn't been there that we expected. We get on the phone with them or we actually go find them in our community if it's in one of our communities um, and then really start talking about what's the next, if they missed it today, what's the next chance? We have seen that some people wanted it. They were scheduled, but they're now sick and they can't receive it. So that has caused us to make some quick adjustments and try to um, really come up with what alternatives. For us in long-term care, at this point, we only get so many clinics. So we're, we're, we're thinking, okay, so what do we do next? And how do we continue to push to get as many people vaccinated as possible? So again, it's an everyday evaluation and, and, and push towards doing it a little bit better each day. Um, there's a question um, we plan to touch on and also similar question came in from the audience. When we talk about staff planning, making sure you have enough people available to um, administer and then follow up and, and observe patients. What are your thoughts about non-traditional providers, um, dentists, veterinarians, um, National Guard? Um, how creative can we be in that? Have you given thought to a process for um, effectively training and ensuring consistency and how this is done. Maybe I'll, I'll take a first uh, swag at that. We are very interested in non-traditional vaccinators. And I think there's a big distinction between the RN or the pharmacist that's drawing up the dose mm -hmm. and the person that's 
putting the needle in a in a deltoid. And actually, one of one of our health system CEOs uh, is a urologist, and and he said, Dan, I, I think the risk to the public is greater with the pen they're signing a consent form than it is with that 27 gauge inch and a half needle. And and frankly, I, I share that perspective. And what we have, <clears throat> there's federal federal guidelines, but there also is um, there's state uh, hmm. scope of practice. Uh, but what we've got through a state of emergency, our governor has has changed that for nurse practitioners and PAs and certain practice agreements have been waived, telemedicine requirements. We have waivers over a lots of things and based on uh, the ability to offer an executive order in the time of a, a, a declared emergency. So we are looking, and that's very timely because um, we are looking in the uh, in the next week or so, as we finalize uh, an executive order, we're, we'll be submitting to the governor for his consideration. Um, not just uh, we, we've already done uh, medical students and nursing students and who reached a, a certain part of their clinical training, but also those who we are under consideration, uh, whether it's podiatrists and veterinarians and and uh, and folks who've been retired with the idea that. You know, if 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 you've been a proceduralist um, or someone who's given vaccinations, the learning curve isn't, you know, isn't that steep. And that we do have a, a 10 or 15 minute video that our Virginia Department of Health has done. That's part of that requirement. And we have volunteers through the the Medical Reserve Corps here in Virginia that that can sign up and lay people are there to help organize testing events and canvassing around testing and PPE distribution early in the pandemic. And now that focus obviously is with community events around uh, vaccine vaccination. So we've been, I think, on the creative side, we are proposing to the governor a fairly uh, creative approach with, again, the dietary, other other professionals, students, but also those who are uh, retirees. And and because we're in the U.S. and not in other countries, uh, medical liability is a concern to make sure that during the pandemic it. You know, the standard for a number of other things, it's gross negligence, you intend harm, you're, li you're personally liable for simple negligence where you acted in good faith, trying to do your best, and, and something else, uh, something uh, untoward occurred, then you are uh, protected by uh, whether you're employed or whether you're a volunteer. So I think we're going to push that envelope. Um, we, we have right now the shortage of vaccine does not have us test that envelope, but in good faith, we believe when we have the doses available, we will need to use everyone. And obviously you need your RNs and your pharmacists there to, to make sure that the safety factor is in if there's dilution or not, and then how it's drawn up or not and maintaining sterility. Um, but otherwise, I, I think we could really leverage uh, an extended workforce. And I'm very curious what yeah. other folks think and what other states are doing. And, and just real quick before hearing from the others, I just want to say, um, I, I'm not going to make the announcements that I planned on making. I'm just going to put those announcements in the follow-up email so that we don't take time away from the conversation here. Um, so this question of, of um, bringing others in to do the injections, Penny, do you have thoughts on yeah. that? So we have um, thought very creatively. Staffing is always going to be a problem when you're balancing 
um, managing the inpatient capacity, which is at obviously its peak, we have a field hospital up and running and making sure that we're vaccinating. We on a, we're on a much smaller scale, scale than uh, what Secretary Kerry's dealing with, but still with our, with our um, caregivers here um, and getting them vaccinated, we've had to think very creatively um, the wonderful thing is that we've had, uh, we have our attachment to our medical school, the UMass Medical School. And so they've brought students in and thinking through it that way. Also, we have, because we're a healthcare system, there are a lot of people that are drawn to healthcare positions that are not clinical, that are actually clinically, you know, trained. So we have nurses in, in other parts of our corporate services like IT. I actually have a couple of nurses on my team in the data side of things. Um, where we've been able to kind of get them linked into the process to help with that. It's really that all hands on deck mentality that we're, we're aiming for and thinking creatively. I'd like to add the additional perspective regarding this huge opportunity to inspire a generation of young people. I share uh, with Dr. Carey the, the uh, perspective that it's not very complex to learn how to give a vaccine. It's really not. And we have an opportunity for young people, you know, even as, as young as high school students, you know, to inspire them and to uh, have them take part in something that is a national effort. Mm. So if we become a little bit bold uh, and think about it as an opportunity um, to create really a, a, an impactful significant memory in a young mind and to enhance this purpose, uh, feeling of purpose and of service. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have four children. I would like them to be part of this if this is, you know, if this is available to them. Um, so I would really like to see that happen. I would really like to see people take part of it, even if they are not certified uh, healthcare personnel. And then, you know, think about it. And uh, this is going to be a memory for life. And this can be also a mindset uh, changing about, you know, what can I do as a person for my community? How, uh, how have I participated in the effort? And this is happening, you know, uh, spontaneously where you know people try to do their best we, we we saw many expressions of this during the pandemic you know people trying to reach out and do something that they can do but if we offer this opportunity it would be significant it would be memorable and um, then we'll solve the problem of you know staffing that shouldn't be a problem I mean we should only be limited by the dosage that we have that should be the only limiting factor. Mm -hmm. Um, Lisa, what, what's your perspective on on that question about who's giving the injections? Oh, you're you muted. I think you unmuted. And I get two points. I share the sentiment of the panel. I'm certainly not a clinician, but listening, you know, to the panel, if, if you know, clinically we're able to do this and it's safe. You know, I think of in long term care, the many, many, many certified nursing assistants um, that 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 you know, it would add value to their purpose and serving their people. Um, but I also think of people that don't have any clinical background at all. I, I would absolutely volunteer to help this. And I think in a, in a time where the entire healthcare system and frontline practitioners are overburdened um, and we're managing that the best we can, that if it's, you know, and if it's an idea that we can tap into other people to assist with the vaccination process, then, you know, I, I think that's fabulous would be quite, it would, it would be exciting to, to see that happen.
And I may add just one more comment. I think Shlomit uh, added about the, um, I, I think we're talking about the role of the actual, the, whoever depresses the, the syringe plunger. But I, I think we are, you know, we want this to be in Virginia, the biggest volunteer effort in the history of the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. So we are partnering with universities where often they have health professions schools so there's faculty there's students and again this uh not that we we are planning these um again full scale we need two to three times if not more uh, the the availability of the vaccine um so that this really should be how we all participate so the challenges is on data entry on uh, crowd control and and uh uh all the logistics of of an event, you know, most of them are not, you know, putting your, your depressing the thumb. It's, mm-hmm. you gotta be really super safe on the care of the, the vaccine and that custodianship to make sure it's, it's there. And, um, but there's a huge opportunity for a whole generation to volunteer, to be part of this in order to uh, make these events successful. And that's certainly a goal here in Virginia and I, I hope it's a goal uh, nationally. And that's something I do think that uh, the federal government, the new administration could emphasize. How how might this be a public, you know, who, well, I, I, I know there are those that are anti-vaxxers and, and the like, um, but who, who could argue with all of us coming together with the definitive uh, therapy of, of developing herd immunity across the, the country and coming together to be part of that. And uh, I think that's a tremendous opportunity. And I think it's a tremendous um, way to bring us together after this pandemic. We are also, we we really have uh, taxed our own resiliency. We're fatigued. We're with the discord at the, at the, uh, the national level with, with the election and, and uh, people's beliefs. And what played out at the Capitol on not that many weeks ago, we we need every reason to come together. And what could be a better way to come together than to volunteer and be part of the national vaccine effort? And our uh, Vaccinate Virginia campaign here in Virginia is is mobilizing uh, volunteers uh, through our Medical Reserve Corps, where lay people can can volunteer as well for our events and. And as we get the National Guard mobilized for large-scale events, um, that will be part of, of that as well. And just, uh, you know, another word regarding that is that, um, you know, we improve as uh, human beings if we are put in an experience that is really not in our zone of comfort. And so I did send my husband to volunteer, and he's, um, he's a computer um, scientist, and he has, you know, you know the only the only connection with healthcare is is me, um, but he volunteered to be to do the administration for the first responders, and you know it was an amazing experience for him to be in something that he was you know it was, he was kind of briefed what what do you have to do today this is what you do one two three four, 
And, you know, this is the last thing, you know, he came uh, home, uh, first of all, with greater appreciation for me, which is always good. But the other thing is really a, an experience for him that uh, it was meaningful. So I, I would like to see more of that. Mm-hmm. And Secretary Kerry, I want to thank you. I, if, I think you have to leave about 10 minutes early. So if if want to um, let people know if you drop off, um, that's why. But But thank you for being part of this today. Oh, no, point for you. You're, you're muted, Secretary. <laughs> I didn't want to leave. I, in fact, this was my first meeting, I think, in the last 11 months without at least one of these. So here we go. I, I, I got a point at least uh, right before the buzzer here. But I, I know all of us are busy, so I, I, I apologize for leaving, uh, leaving a bit early, but my schedule has changed, and, and we got eight and a half million Virginians. We got to get vaccinated, and uh, that's, that's my job, number one, two, and three. So I just want to thank Mark um, to in- include me. It's been a tremendous opportunity. Frankly, one of the things I, I wanted to get and I have gotten is other perspectives. What are what is what is happening on at the provider level? I, I get a lot of input, but you know I do have a role, and and it's a little bit of a Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Just not me personally, but the role does influence what people share with you and um, getting direct feedback, uh, albeit not in Virginia, was still extremely helpful. So I am impressed by all the great uh, management that's going on and with a, with a lean perspective and performance improvement. And, and uh, I really uh, have enjoyed my time. So Mark, thank you so much. Uh, uh, Lisa and Penny and Shlumi, thank you so very much. And thank you to our audience for providing uh, one, your attention today, and two, your your questions. So thanks so much, and, and I'll sign off. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. There's a couple of other questions I'd like to get to. One, um, actually kind of building, um, Dr. Shaw, on, on what you talked about with volunteering. Um, so Bella asked, you know, as an independent lean practitioner, I'm sitting on the sidelines watching these struggles. Um, volunteer roles seem to be limited to healthcare providers, or directing traffic in parking lots. Are there any thoughts on how to best approach local officials to offer help? Um, I'm, I'm very much in that same situation. That's a question that really means a lot to me as well. If, if we want to try to volunteer at an organization or let's say at a county health department level, where any thoughts on, on how we could even try to create an opportunity like that? Yeah, it's actually, it's very interesting because I had a meeting earlier this morning with one of our chairs said, it's very difficult to volunteer. We are making it very difficult to mm. volunteer. So one thing that I would say is that um, uh, in during this process, I've come to realize, I knew it in the back of my mind all the time, but during this um, pandemic, I came to realize that the process is very, very important. It's important to uh, allow us to provide uh, better care to our patients. Um, and specifically in something that is so technical and repetitive, we need to standardize the way that we do it. And we do need the experts in uh, process improvement. We do need the engineers. We do need uh, the lean black belt people to contribute to that because, um, you know, regular uh, healthcare providers, healthcare givers, even though they're very skilled at what they do, um, this skill in design, a process that will make it efficient 
uh, is not something that is part of the training of the typical uh, healthcare giver, whatever their role is it, it may be. And one thing that is a bias for all of us, you know, I'm a physician, I see my part in the chain. I'm not quite sure, you know, what the nurse part is, what the front desk part is, the check-in, the check-out, the phone. I don't know all of this. I know my part. So really the importance of people uh, in process design, process uh, improvement cannot be uh, further emphasized uh, nowadays and in general in, in healthcare. I don't have a magic bullet solution of how you can uh, volunteer, but what I would say is, you know, offer, offer, you know, offer to volunteer, write letters, say, I'm ready to do this. This is, these are my skills. How can I help? How can I help? Um, and, you know, people will respond because uh, I think uh, these skills are needed. They are needed now more than ever. And I think going forward in, in healthcare, I think these skills will be further appreciated in terms of how we design a process that if you come to the process, you know, as a mediocre caregiver, the process will make you excellent. Mm -hmm. And if you come excellent, you're going to be excellent. If you come as a poor caregiver, maybe you're not going to fit into the process at all. And it's going to kind of, uh, you're going to be flagged out. Um, um, Lisa or Penny, any, I don't know if we, Dr. Shaw froze up or if we lost her. Um, Penny or Lisa, any thoughts on, to add about the, uh, the volunteering? Lisa, are you still there? Maybe we have a UMass. Oh, there we go. Oh, maybe, maybe it's my internet. I lost the, both of the UMass. Uh, <laughs> both that was, a, that was <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Penny or Lisa, any thoughts on that question about volunteering? There's one other question I want to ask about flow of, of, of the vaccination process. Yeah, um, I think that I think I don't have an answer either. Um, I think that there's um, an issue in the sense that with COVID, we've locked everything down right from an outside perspective. You know, hospital systems are saying our, visit, our visitor policies are locked down. So therefore also our, our, a lot of times our volunteer policies are locked down and things like that, which makes it very, very difficult. But also other organizations are doing the same thing because they're just trying to protect their people and, and keep business running. So I think it makes it very challenging to do that. I, I, I don't have an answer, but I do know that it's it's truly actually a problem. And I think to Dr. Shaw's point where this is a very valuable skill set in terms of helping this problem, um, it's it's an unfortunate situation, but I, I'm not quite sure that I can add anything from a, you can go here right. <laughs> kind of thing. Okay, well, maybe let, let's touch on the other question. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges that's been in the news a lot is the the problem of doses going to waste at the end of a day or going to waste at the end of their um, shelf life at room temperature. So what, what are some of your strategies to try to create this balance of, you know, not running out of vaccine and having to send people away, but not running out of doses? Um, what, what have you done to, um, you know, kind of iterate and get better at managing that balance of people and doses? Do you want me to start? I can start. Sure, um, the um, yeah, we'll go there and then make sure Lisa gets a chance too, and because um, I'm sure she has great stuff to add. The um, 
so the process I mentioned earlier, we had the, quite a high inertia rate of 10%, um, at least on the initial VAX. Uh, so when you think about the no-show rate, that can be a really big issue um, with wasted vaccine if you think too far in advance, right? And if you say, I'm going to take out all these doses for this group, and then they don't show up, it's a problem. So they actually manage it, and I kind of said this, minute by minute, hour by hour, and they're watching, and they know the defrost rate and the timing and how long it takes to do that. And so they've built process as to every so often they're checking the list, they're then pulling the, the doses out, making sure people are showing up so that by the end of the day, they really aren't wasting a lot. However, Every now and then you get a problem because you have the multi-dose vials. And um, so it's it's factoring that in as well. Um, and so what they'll do is, especially on the first set of doses, when people were like begging to come in, um, you know, they're going around and trying to find people to bring in to just so that they don't waste them. So, but we're trying to build it into the process design of it all of the speed at which we're defrosting and the speed at which we're um, processing people through the, the clinic itself. Uh, for, you know, from our end, um, the, it's really being managed by the pharmacy provider um, as to, but in collaboration with us as to how many people we think we're gonna have at a clinic, how many residents are eligible to get it that day. So really down to the day before they're coming, we're trying to reconcile the right number so that we don't create a situation for them where we've created waste um, because we've given them the wrong number or something. But it really, for us, and, and our clinics are small, right? Numbers less than 300 people, uh, residents and staff included, uh, just have really tried to be uh, nimble and learn to adjust on the fly. Uh, something as simple as, you know, what, when we didn't know what we were getting, um, you know, we just said, okay, everybody, when the clinic comes, ask them how many they brought. We didn't even, you know, we, so we learned that. So now every clinic we say, how many did you bring? And then we adjust for the day. So sometimes it's simple learnings uh, that really help us to try to reduce the waste for our pharmacy provider. And Mark, one thing to add, um, the state uh, the state has really started looking at the the metric of how many doses have been received versus given. And it's a number that we're constantly trying to drive up. Um, and the state of Massachusetts is really trying to improve their, their, their metric on that front. And so it's something that we're starting to incorporate into our dashboards um, for me measuring that and really giving every dose out um, it, that we're receiving and speeding that up. So we're adding extra clinics and things like that in order just to be able to do that. So that's another, another view of that. All right, so we're we're right at um, two thirty Eastern. So um, I want to thank. Um, I think we should wrap up just out of respect for um, all the time that um, our panelists have already provided. Unfortunately, there are a lot of great questions that were submitted that we weren't able to get to. Um, we we might try to find a way of posting some of those questions online and see if we can facilitate discussion from um, people, in, including those in the audience who um, are doing similar um, types of work and want to learn and share. Um, so Lisa, Penny, Dr. Shaw, um, thank you so much for, for being generous with, with your time and your thoughts and reflections and um, sharing with us here in the webinar. Thanks for having me.
Thank you very much. I learned a lot. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, to thank Mark you. and certainly the folks on the panel, um, thank you for this opportunity. I, you know, always I have a, two pages of notes here that I'm anxious to take back to our team. And uh, certainly from the lean perspective, uh, it's all of us working together, sharing this um, because of the differences that can be made. So thanks for your time. Thanks for allowing me to participate. It's been extraordinarily helpful for me and to all the participants in your questions. Great questions. Well, thank you. And I want to thank um, everybody who helped initiate this. I want to give credit to um, Helen Zach at Valley Capture and the others who kind of brainstormed um, and filled out the panel. Um, I want to thank um, KineXus for lending the webinar platform and for helping support and promote this. And we also want to thank Catalysis for helping um, share um, with their community. And I put an, a link in the chat. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Catalysis for partnering up with Salem Health where they put together a webinar that talks about their experiences. And that includes a video that Salem Health shot that really goes through in, in a lot of detail how their process was set up. So I'll point people to that for um, an additional opportunity to learn. And it's kind of a virtual Gemba visit, which is uh, a neat opportunity. So um, thanks again to all of you and uh, hope you continue to be well. Keep up the good work. Thank you, everyone.